Would you open God's precious holy word to 1 Peter chapter 3? We've come to verses 13 through 17. The inspired apostle has written to the believers who have been displaced because of suffering and persecution by Nero from Rome and have been put into the region that is the modern area that we know of as the nation of Turkey. We have seen how in summary, Peter has written to them regarding who they are, who we are in Christ. He continued and wrote to them with apostolic instruction. how they were to live, how they were to behave in a hostile world, a world hostile to Christians and Christianity. And now he writes telling them to put Christ above everything else in life. So from verses 13 through 17, 1 Peter 3, I want to bring you a message that I call sanctifying Christ. The central verse will be in the second slide that we'll get to, but it is an admonition to the believer to sanctify Christ in our hearts, to sanctify, to set him apart and above everything else, to exalt to venerate, to venerate, even to worship the holiness, the sanctification of Christ in our lives. Thus teaching us that he should be high and exalted and above all other things in our lives. There are about three things that I want to extract from these verses. So let's look to them. Beginning in verse 13, number one, goodness begets respect. A Christian, let's say in one of those regions, let's say Bithynia, comes with the Romans knowing that Christianity has been condemned, the accusations have been made that Christians are uh, fanatical and are to be held responsible for the burning of Rome. They're dangerous to society. And so here a Christian is, and let's, let's say Bithynia, or some other of those places. And the first thing that will happen is that people will know he has come into this area having been run out of Rome and run away from another place. They will naturally look with suspicion, even 
heartfelt condemnation upon this Christian. How's he going to get along? Peter writes, it's your behavior. It's how you display yourself where you live that will mold the opinions about you for those who are around you. Therefore, you're not to be a troublemaker. You're to be, you're to be uh, respectful. He taught them how to live with regard to civilian authority. Uh, he taught them how the Holy Spirit teaches us to live in a, an employment situation in the New Testament language, masters and slaves. How shall we treat those who are in authority above us regardless of, of who they are? And then he reminded them of the importance of the display of a Christian home, the structure of a Christian home, which would be something, all of these put together especially, would be something totally different from anything these, these Roman citizens had ever seen. They would eventually, it's just human nature, they would eventually warm up to this behavior, to the kindness and to the gentleness of these people, these, these Christians. So he continues here, goodness begets respect and he begins it with a rhetorical question. And who is he who will mistreat you if you should be zealous for that which is good? The word zealous, zealotai, it means to be passionate about something, to be totally sold out to it and to be passionate, to be zealous, filled with zeal about, in this case, that which is good. I will submit to you and if you have two or three weeks to debate with me, I'll prove it to you that society historically has benefited from Christianity. I'm a student of history. I spend a great deal of history studying historical records, studying books, studying records that really aren't in print anymore. But the, the accounts and the records of life in centuries gone by. You can go back to the pre-Christian era and you can note that there is an element of cruelty that in many ways is unheard of, especially in the Western world up until, up until recent years. In the, in the Western world, unheard of, unthinkable things that would happen to people that people in authority could just do because they could. The concept of human rights is a biblical concept. And a biblical worldview has been, has been good for society as a whole. Paul writes to the 
Thessalonians and he is talking about the end times because Christians, the Thessalonians, they had a question. They had questions about, you know, um, my, my grandparents were believers. My parents were believers. Now decades have passed and they've gone. What has happened? We thought Jesus was going right up there and coming right back and establishing a kingdom. And he begins to answer these questions in his letters to the Thessalonians. One of the great teachings that he speaks about with regard to the end of days is that the son of perdition, the man of sin, the Antichrist, will not be revealed until this happens. And it's, it's a twofold description of the same event. And he uses in the Greek text, he uses a neuter and a, a masculine. This bad guy who when he comes will introduce a lot of bad stuff the world has never known cannot be revealed until he who restrains and that which restrains is removed or are removed. But it's, it's a description of the same thing. The work of the Holy Spirit in the church Christ said to those who would believe in him, you are the, the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You are the only light that the world has. Otherwise, the world tends and trends to darkness, to evil. It is, it is in the mind of a person to do evil. You don't have to teach children how to do bad. You have to teach children how to do good. They know already how to do bad because they are of a fallen race. They are birthed in sin, conceived in sin. David would even say of himself, I was part of a human race that is fallen. And even when I was conceived as part of that human race, I was in sin. So all have sinned. It is our nature to be sinful, sinful. It is, it is the tendency of the world apart from Christ to move toward darkness, to do more and more evil. I will say as well that when that light hides its light, darkness will grow. Salt is a preserver. You've heard that. It preserves things. Christ said of those who would follow him, you are the preserver of the earth. The earth would have long since destroyed itself if not for God's people, the elect of God through the ages. If not for that, the world would have collapsed into ruin and would have destroyed itself. So then, it behooves us as Christians because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And because of the imperatives that exist in the New Testament for us to be obedient to, be obedient to Christ, we find that Christians carry with them light to dispel darkness and salt to preserve from ruin. 
and to restrain that which otherwise wants to destroy everything. To do good. When the Christians moved into these regions, Peter described early in, in 1 Peter 1, it is implicit in the text itself that these people have never seen anything like this. Many times, and, and, and not to keep going on and on about it, but pagan worship is horrible. It is extraordinarily horrific and sinful. Generally always built on a, on a, on a fertility cult in both testaments, both, I mean, let's go back to Nimrod in Genesis 10, Babel, the place where the tongues were confused and they had a king named Nimrod. Alexander Hyssop? No, Hyslop. Hyslop. Hyssop is the other thing. Wrote a book. Brilliant book. He did it, on his, he did it from his own research, studying archaeologically and, and all, these, all these studies he did in that part of the world. And he wrote a book called The Two Babylons. Nimrod... According to what was discovered, it's, it's, it's extra biblical work, but it's interesting to think about. There was this problem, there was this, this prophecy that God had made that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so the world knew that in the pre-flood days and in the early post-flood days, of course, and the mandate from God to replenish the earth and there was a rebellion against that. And so they made for themselves their own names of deity at Babel. And they were building a tower to carry themselves into heaven. Now, extra biblically, you can tell you for what it's worth, but according to the ancient writings, Nimrod had a wife. And of course, the world would understand that this virgin born seed of woman would be the deliverer of the world and carry the world into utopia, into a wonderful kingdom. And so Nimrod is called a mighty hunter in the Bible. He came back from a hunting trip. Yeah. And his wife said, guess what? I've been impregnated by a sunbeam. And so there came to be a worship of mother and child. Started all there according to the extra biblical writings. Isaiah condemns the worship of mother and child as a matter of fact. Terribly cultic. But Nimrod established this, this society, this culture, this kingdom where everybody spoke the same language. And the Bible says in Genesis 10, the beginning of his kingdom 
was at Babel, the beginning of it. You don't see an end to it until you get over to the Revelation 14 through 18. My, oh, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. So this, this darkness, this evil spiritual concept of false gods and self-worship and so forth. This thing continues all the way through society. And what sprang from that through the, through the, the influence of the Elilim, the demons, were these demon gods that were worshipped. And as part of the worship, there was this horrible behavior, aberrant sexual behavior. It was a natural part of their worship. This continues on, and that brings us all the way up. The names of the gods may have changed from one era to the next, but they had the same kind of so-called worship. Brings us then to the time of these Christians to whom Peter writes, those pagans because of the culture in which they grew up, they didn't understand. They'd never, well, they had never been exposed to true Christian living. What Peter says, what the Holy Spirit through Peter says is, this will be attractive to some. And they will be drawn to Christ through how you live. When they discover that the reason you live the way you live is because you have sanctified Christ in your lives. You've set him apart. He is the primary source of everything for you. Christ. So it begins with this rhetorical question. Why would anybody mistreat you if you are zealous for doing good? So what happens when into a a wild society, settled, disciplined, humble Christians come in and they give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Their children are subject to authorities. They've been, they've been taught. They have a role for the husband, a, whole, a role for the wives, a role for the children. They grow up in the structured, disciplined Christian Home, this becomes attractive. They're the best workers at their jobs where they're employed. The authorities on, in the workplace recognize that the Christians are honestly working and they're doing all they can do to do the best that they can do. The magistrates and the civil authorities would have recognized these people are not troublemakers. Yea, rather they seek to do the best they can do to be good citizens where they're living. That begins, to, that begins to make a difference. Thus, here comes the rhetorical question. Who is he who will mistreat you if you should be zealous for that which is good? It takes time, but over time, such influence comes to bear fruit. In a culture, in a village, in a city, in a society 
where those people are living. The biblical worldview, if you will. Goodness begets respect. Secondly, a fearless and well-defined hope sanctifies Christ as Lord. Remember I told you the identifying word for First Peter was the word hope. We have hope in Christ. Well, let's look at this. But even if you should suffer because of righteousness, you are blessed. It is being experienced today more than I've ever known it in my lifetime. And it is this. Even though committed Christians do good, there are elements within society who are intolerant of their goodness because of Christ, because of their Christianity. It's, it's no other reason other than that we are Christians. And so they become intolerant. It's, it's an increasing thing. I, you know, I've lived a while and, and I, I have seen... Uh, uh, I don't know whether to call it remarkable or unremarkable, change in the societal walk that people make. So we are obedient to Christ. We believe the scriptures. We know that the word of God is absolutely true. And we must be obedient to our Lord. And it's not harmful to anyone. It, it is only harmful to those who want to be free to sin in the way that they sin. And they're not free at all. You see, if you're, if you're not in Christ, you are a slave. You are enslaved to sin. That's what the Bible says. They refuse the world to believe that. And now, because of the goodness of Christianity, they become uncomfortable without desire of repentance or confession of sin. It is for them to strike out against Righteousness, which is presented in no other way than just by the simple way that we live to the world. So it happens, and the Holy Spirit acknowledges this. But even if you should suffer because of righteousness, you are blessed. I would rather have the suffering that comes from an intolerant world, a world intolerant of my Christian belief and my Christian life. I would rather suffer from that than to live a life of compromise and to think that somehow I have to get along with these people. No, no, no. I have to submit in obedience to Christ and that's all that matters. It'll work itself out. So, you are blessed. You see that, that Greek word up there, makah. Makarioi. Makarioi comes from the word makarios, which means uh, 
It means to be privileged. It means to enjoy unspeakable benefits that come as a favor because of position, because you happen to be there. It is a word used over and over by Christ in the Greek text of Matthew in the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. In the creation of that word, it's an interesting study. Makarios, the creation of that word is such that it goes like this. The Greeks believed that the island of Cyprus, which in those days was the perfect place. It was filled with fruit trees and flowers and sweet aromas and, and flowered walkways. The, the atmosphere was always perfect. It was just wonderful to be on the island of Cyprus. And it was the belief of the pagan Greeks, according to their mythology, that Cyprus was the birthplace of gods. <laughs> and so that to live... As the gods lived on Cyprus, one had everything he could possibly want. He had fruits and, and berries and flowers and fresh water of the burbling, bubbling brooks that went by and sprang forth out of the ground. Cyprus was the most beautiful and perfect place in the mind of a Greek. And so the word makarios was created to describe someone who lives in such pleasure, in such absolute satisfaction and privilege, needing nothing, wanting nothing, having exactly what was required for one to live an absolute satisfied life. That was makarios. That's to be blessed. That's the Greek word. Well, here it is. Even if you should suffer because of righteousness, you are, you are privileged because of your position. You have something in life that can only be had if you live according to righteousness. Now, the opposite of blessing is cursing. Now, he quotes Isaiah 8 here. And you should not be afraid of their threats or intimidations, nor should you be troubled or, or distressed. It comes from a section in Isaiah that speaks of Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, in a time when the Aramean king had entered into an alliance with the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And they, in their alliance, wanted to attack Assyria. They wanted Ahaz to join them in this alliance and then in this war to attack Assyria. Ahaz refused. And when he refused, they threatened him. They intimidated him. Well, if you don't join us, we're coming after you. And Isaiah said these words to Ahaz the king. He said, you should not be afraid of their threats or their intimidations, nor should you be troubled. 
Because God was in control. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. There's the central, there's the central part of the context where we find ourselves today. Venerate, exalt, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. In Christ, you can threaten me with anything that the world may throw at me. And if there are things apart from Christ, I don't know, little things that may happen. If you want me to paint my house blue instead of red, okay. But if you want me in any whit to reject the cause of Christ, the things of Christ, the blessings of Christ, to in any way doubt the precious holy word of Christ, if you come against my Christ in any way, I can't do it. I can compromise in some things. I cannot compromise Christ. He is sanctified in my heart. He is exalted above all other things. He is venerated. He is in the primary place of my life. And nothing else can approach this high and holy place where Christ is in my heart. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. You see the word Lord? Kurion comes from kurios, which means, and it's, it's, the, it's the Greek form that we get the word Caesar from. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready for a defense. To everyone asking you to give an account concerning the hope in you yet with gentleness and reverence. Always ready for a defense, defense, apologion, apologetics. You ever heard of that in Christian work? Apo, apo, it's a Greek compound. Apo means away from, logos means word, to remove the word. It's a, it's a courtroom word as well. To make a defense, make a defense that removes the testimony of the one opposing you in the courtroom. Well, this is what Christian apologetics does. It stands to defend the Christian faith. We are told here, we are told to always be ready for a defense to everyone asking you to give an account concerning the hope in you. What is this? Why is this so important to you? Why are you willing to die for this? Why, why would you separate yourself from, from even society for the sake of the sanctification of Christ in your hearts? Why would you do this? Begs the question for each of us, are we ready then to defend the faith? You just stand in the word and on the word and stay in the word. Don't let the world make a fool of you. Truth is stronger than fiction. Truth will stand. Fiction will not stand. 
Therefore, we are admonished implicitly to understand the things of Christianity, to understand the Bible, to know why the Bible says what it says and to be able to defend it. In defense to everyone asking you to give an account concerning the hope in you. That doesn't say go looking for a fight. But it also says don't go running from it when it comes to you. Defend, defend. Always ready for a defense. I will present an infallible defense that will remove your word. To everyone asking you to give an account concerning the hope in you. There are people who sincerely want to understand Christianity and they don't understand it. We should be prepared to help them understand it. And sometimes they have ridiculous questions and we should stand ready to answer those questions. To defend Christ. To defend Christianity. To defend our faith. Concerning the hope in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. If I sit down at a table of debate, having been asked by someone to give an account concerning the hope in me, I am not going to bring my AR-15 and put it on the table before I sit down. I may want to. I'm coming with a gentle heart, with, with reverence. You see the word fear, which is, I've translated reverence here. Phobu, it's the last Greek word there. Phobu. Phobia. Yeah, you heard of that, phobia. Phobia, come phobos. It means to reverence or to reverentially stand in awe of or to fear. But it comes when you, when you chase that word through classic Greek and the, and the classic Greek writings, here's what you come to realize. The word means the removal of self. To remove myself from this thing. With gentleness and reverence. To remove myself from the debate, from the defense, and to present nothing but Christ. Christ can stand on his own. I've learned through the years. God God doesn't need my help. He is totally self-sufficient within himself. Finally, Christ is also sanctified through a good conscience and good behavior. Maintaining a good conscience. Always standing for Christ. I'm not wishy-washy about this. I stand on the word of God, not wishy-washy about this. Not going to back down from that. I have a clear conscience about that. About the things of faith, about my, my relationship to Christ. These are things that are very clear to me. And I have a conscience. You know, the conscience is that God-given part of the soul of a man. The, the sukkos, the soul of a man. And that conscience is something that can either condemn or affirm. A clear conscience means that you've, been, you've affirmed yourself. It's okay. So 
maintaining a good conscience so that when they slander you, and they will, those reviling you in your good manner of life will be ashamed because you have a clear conscience. You've, you've never wavered or wobbled on, on your faith, who Christ is, what his relationship is to you and your relationship is to him. The wonderful perfection of God's word, the importance of Christian living and Christian behavior in whatever culture I'm placed, always the same. Slander will come, reviling will come, speaking against you will come from those who are intolerant, but the others who are around you will recognize that it's not true. That's not how he is. This is not true. And they will be ashamed. It is better to suffer for doing good if the will of God wills it than for doing evil. Now, I've literally translated this. Afloi, if wills it, to felema, the will to fear of God. You see, wills it, the will, if the will of God wills it. It's very emphatic in the Greek text. It's better to suffer good for doing the will of God, for, for doing good if the will of God wills it than for doing evil. It goes back to Romans 8. Here, here's, here's the way it is. It's all going to work out for good. I may be going through a tough time. I may be suffering slander and I may be suffering reviling and I may be suffering intolerance from people because of my Christian life. But it is the will of God for me to live that way. And the will of God is stronger than any will of man. And it cannot stand. God's going to work it out. And present it for me as good in my life. Remember what Joseph said to his brothers when they discovered who he was so many years later. And he was there in authority over them. They were so ashamed of having mistreated him decades earlier, selling him into slavery. Joseph simply said, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. This is how we approach life. This is who we are in Christ. It is better to suffer for doing good if the will of God wills it than for doing evil. sanctifying Christ in our hearts. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. Jesus Christ is the son of God and he came into this world to save sinners. If you're here today without Christ, it is my prayer that you don't leave that way. In just a moment, we'll be dismissed from this room. But as you leave, you will see that there are deacons and their wives standing in doorways just across the hall. You'll see them as you exit. They'll be there ready to pray with you and to speak with you about Christ. Maybe you're already a Christian and God is leading you to come and be a part of the Shiloh family. They're prepared to help you there as well as you leave as God places it on your heart. 
prayerfully would you stand all over this room and we'll be dismissed from this service in prayer.